Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the weekly live stream. My name is Ryan Pauly. I hope you guys are doing well in this crazy time that we're living in right now. I think there's no uh, no getting around it. It's weird. It's strange. I've been sitting in front of this computer all day long as now I'm teaching my high school classes online and I am doing Zoom video with all my students. So I Zoom with five different classes every single day. I'm trying to lecture and show them videos and, and help them see important information um, online. And it's interesting and it's weird. Um, I'm thankful for the technology, as maybe many of us are, as well as at the same time, it's, uh, it's, it's weird being at home all day long, not being around people and having to talk to everyone over the internet. But here we are, another week, talking with you guys over the internet. And um, this last week, I, I, deal, I dealt with the issue of doubt with my high school students. We're kind of in the end of our book, um, looking at if Christianity is true, why do people walk away? Why don't more people believe that it's true? Um, and, and, you know, if, if, why aren't they not finding the compelling, reasonable, the, the compelling arguments reasonable? Why, when, when you are doing apologetics or when you're sharing the gospel and you give someone good reasons why they should believe in Christianity, why do they not find that compelling and reasonable? And so that's what we're going to be looking at today in our discussion. And so I want to encourage you guys, if you have questions on dealing with uh, doubt with yourself or with other people, uh, send those in. I'll do my best to, to give a response. I also want to let you know that uh, the interview next week with Mike Winger was postponed uh, for a later date. I'll let you guys know when that happens again. And so next week is open. And so I want to encourage you if you uh, want to comment in and uh, what topic you would like to see covered next week. I would love to hear your thoughts on that and, and cover something that you guys want to, to hear. Um, also, I do want to let you guys know that next week... I will be doing an interview with Anjanette Roberts from Reasons to Believe. She's a molecular biologist and a virologist. She actually did three years, I think, of research on the coronavirus years ago. And uh, so she's going to be coming on on March 31st is the date. Yeah, March 31st. And I think at 1.30 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And so we're going to be discussing the virus, viruses in general. What are they? How do they work? Uh, why would God create them? Uh, how do we deal with the problem of evil and suffering that is caused by viruses? And a lot of the issues that we are dealing with today. So I, I will wait until then to address a lot of the questions uh, that come in on the topic of the coronavirus and viruses in general. And so um, today I want to be focusing on doubt, as something that, again, we may be doubting God's existence because often doubt comes from intellectual questions of why does God allow evil? Why is God allowing pain and suffering? And that is one reason why we doubt, right? And we have to understand that there are different types of doubt. And I've talked about this before, that there's intellectual doubt. And this is coming in from inside of us from the questions that we have. And that's one reason why I do a question of the day. And that's one reason why I do this in my high school class. And then I also post those questions on YouTube is because I want YouTube to be filled with a place and the internet and to have these resources available to people to where when you have intellectual questions and doubts regarding Christianity, uh, you can go. And I want to encourage you to write those down, figure out what those doubts are, research them, look online, look on YouTube and search those questions online and find helpful questions. And, you know, maybe search as well with that apologetics. And so you can hear kind of what is the Christian apologist response to some of these intellectual questions and challenges that you have? Because 
Most of the issues that we deal with today have been thought of by very smart people over the years, the last 2,000 years, and we have a wealth of information to draw from. And so uh, that is a good place to go. But then there's also emotional doubt, doubts that come from uh, pain, angst, anger that we have. This often comes from things like, you know, if God, uh, if, you, if you have, you know, like a mom or someone is sick and you pray for them and then they pass away, that often will lead people to be very angry and upset with God that why did you not answer this prayer? I prayed for you to heal this person and you didn't do it. And we often don't wanna believe in a God like that. It also comes maybe from our stubbornness. I showed a video today to my high school students of Brett Kunkel, the founder of, of Maven, who was on just a couple months ago, and uh, him discussing a story of, you know, when he was gets in an argument with his wife, you know, and I think this is true of all of us, so he shared the story, but I think I can also share it for myself of, has there been a time in your life, maybe I'll just ask you, has there been a time in your life when you were in an argument with someone and partway through that argument, you had the intellectual thought, oh my goodness, they're right and I'm wrong. But because your emotions were high, because your hurt level was high, that you continued fighting it. Or maybe you looked something up online to prove to them that you were right and you found the fact on your phone and the fact actually showed that you are wrong and you kind of ignored it and kept arguing. I think maybe that's happened to a lot of us, if not all of us. And it shows how the emotions can sometimes take over uh, what it is that we're going through and cause us to recognize or cause us to not recognize or acknowledge the truth and the intellectual issues that we are going through. And uh, the last type of doubt being Moral doubt, this comes from sin, comes from rebellion, that we simply just want to live the way that we want to live. And we want to continue doing the things that we want to do. And as I um, had one student tell me once, if I admit that God exists, then I'll have to stop doing the things I want to do, right? It'll have to just change his life. And it was something that he was unwilling to change. And there's this act of rebellion and sin that comes into it. So these are different types of doubt that, that flow into us. But also there's ways in which our doubt comes from. Why are these intellectual issues coming up? Why are these emotional issues coming up? Why are the moral issues coming up? And we actually covered six different reasons in my high school class of where this doubt actually comes from. And that's what I want to look at with you guys today. Now, I also know everyone is live streaming everything, but there's probably a lot of stuff grabbing for your attention too. And so if um, I just want to lay out these things, I know you've been watching here for a few minutes. I want to lay out these these six points and uh, then we're going to go into depth into each one and discuss these and get to some of the questions that you might have. But I also, as a teacher, one, and just want to lay out everything so you know what's coming. But also, hey, if this is something you're not interested in, click away. That's all right. Um, obviously, I want you guys to watch it. I think it's important. But obviously, if this is something you're not interested in, there's a lot of stuff going on. I just want to encourage you to seek after good information. I want to encourage you to continue learning. Don't use this time of maybe being uh, in quarantine or social distancing to fill with distractions, but really fill it with meaningful pursuits. And that's a video that I put out recently and actually deals with one of the areas that doubts come from. And so I just want to encourage you guys to fill your time in this time, uh, fill it with good, meaningful things as we continue to learn and grow and love one another rather than just pure distractions, uh, which I always admit for myself, that's difficult. I have been very distracted lately, spent a lot too much time on YouTube, uh, but um, 
yeah, I just encourage you guys to pursue those meaningful things. So where do doubts come from? Well, the first thing we're going to look at is that doubts actually come from a lack of foundational knowledge, that our, our knowledge, actually, we don't know certain things, and then doubts are going to flow from that. The second thing we're going to look at is that doubts come from a misunderstanding of what belief is. And I think this is a huge one of where we, we don't really understand what belief is and what makes things true necessarily. And then this is where doubts start to creep in. Uh, the third area is that doubts come from conflicting commitments, that we are committed to living or believing a certain thing. And when expressed or when shown something different, we are sometimes unable or unreasonable or unwilling to actually change, right? That's what we're going to look at there. Uh, the next one is that uh, practical atheism. This would be someone who believes that God exists, but lives as if he doesn't, right? We have a, a world that is a very narrow picture of reality. And we are going to judge all things based on our narrow understanding of how the world works. And so rather than seeing things kind of in God's perspective. Uh, the fifth one that we're going to be looking at is that doubt comes from the effects of sin. And then lastly, doubt is going to come from distractions. We, because of distractions, uh, that is going to lead to doubts in our lives. So those are the six ways or six um, different areas that doubt comes from. And so we're going to dive into those so you kind of know where we are going. Now, again, it's important to kind of jump back to the beginning and as, as we start this and recognize that we have to be willing to do a few things in order to truly accept the arguments for Christianity, um, to, to accept them in our lives, to actually see the reasonable, rational arguments as convincing. And the first thing is that we have to be willing to be informed, right? There are some people that we're going to talk to and they're going to keep raising objection after objection after objection. And they really are, don't want to listen to what you have to say. And this is often why I want to have conversations on apologetics and religion in person with people, because then I can actually see what they are like. If, you know, online and when I'm commenting on YouTube videos, I don't know if they're actually even reading my comments. Sometimes it looks like people don't watch the video or read the comments. They simply just want to raise objection after objection after objection. And so the first thing that you yourself and you have to recognize of other people is that you have to be willing to be informed. I'm sure that you can think of a time in your life where you've been trying to convince someone of something, something simple. And I asked my students this, uh, where they shared, you know, my friend tried to convince me to eat pig brain or my, you know, that's not going to work with me. <laughs> that is one where if you try to convince me to eat something crazy, I'm not even going to listen to you. It doesn't matter what arguments you present, what evidence you show me, no matter how delicious you say this thing is, I'm not listening. I am very content eating the simple things that are delicious. Uh, I'm not very adventurous in my food options. Or, you know, hey, you need to come to the gym. Or there's many things that we try to convince our friends to do uh, to stop maybe doing something healthy. One student shared the story of trying to convince her friend to stop drinking so many energy drinks. And he just wouldn't listen. No, they're good. This is what I want to do. I'm going to keep doing it. So sometimes uh, we're just, we don't even want to listen to the arguments that people are presenting or they're not listening to the arguments we're presenting. And so if they're not even willing to be informed, I don't know what we're doing spending so much time trying to give persuasive arguments. The second thing that you have to be willing to do if you're going to find uh, evidence persuasive is that you have to be willing to abandon your conflicting commitment. If they are not abandoned to, or if they're not willing to abandon a commitment that they have that conflicts with what you are presenting, then they're not going to find it convincing. Right? Again, you can probably think of this, where you have an idea, you have a thought, you have a way of living, you have a view of someone and no matter what someone presents and the evidence they say, you just go, that can't be true. I know. I, I, I listen to you. It's, I just think it's false. 
And you may not know why, and you may not may not understand why you're kind of thinking the way that you are, but it, whatever they're saying goes against what you believe, and therefore it has to be wrong, because maybe you're unwilling to admit you're wrong, or unwilling to abandon that idea. And so we have to recognize this when people are commenting and having discussions with us. The last thing that we have to be willing to do is that we have to be willing to... Um, align our lives with God's revealed truth. Now, when talking about apologetic arguments and reasons for Christianity, is if the person is unwilling to align their life in the way that Christ has called them to live, then many times, no matter how many arguments we present, it's not going to work. And I've had this happen to me where people, where someone has said, if I, oh, like this student I just shared, if I admit that God exists and I have to stop doing the things I want to do. Right? I may be convinced of God, I may be willing to be informed, and maybe I'm even convinced and I might abandon it, but I'm willing to un abandon this conflicting commitment because I'm unwilling to align my life in the way that Christ has called me to live. So this is something that we have to recognize and maybe asking the question, if Christianity were true, would you become a, a Christian? And we'll get to this in a moment. I think this is an important question as well is, um, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of happening if you become a Christian? Right, and this might help us in our understanding here is that uh, sometimes people are afraid of, of losing family members. Sometimes people are afraid of losing relationships. Sometimes they're afraid of, you know, they're, they're not willing to pay the price. And we're going to talk about this in, in the second argument of, you know, what are you afraid would happen to you if you became a Christian? And these sort of questions are going to help us as we are struggling ourselves, possibly with some doubts, or as we're having conversations with others and trying to love them well. And again, this is so important because the same thing when you go to a hospital. If you show up, they're not going to just immediately start treating you. They first have to figure out what the problem is. And when there are so many different ways that doubt can creep up in our lives and, and different even types of doubt, if we don't take a second, ask good questions, figure out what is causing this doubt and what type of doubt it is, then we might apply the wrong solution. We might just think they need more convincing arguments because it's purely intellectual and really there's something deeper going on. And so the first area that I talked about that we were going to discuss is this idea of a lack of foundational knowledge. Right? This is where really if you ask even Christians basic ideas or basic questions about Christianity, many Christians can't answer them. Right? If you get deeper than, you know, um, some basic Bible stories, what happened in these certain stories. Um, you know, tell me about Jesus. Jesus is the son of God. He's born of virgin, those sort of questions. If you get deeper, like how is God both, how is Jesus both God and man? Can you explain the Trinity? Right, these much more deeper questions. Uh, now, obviously the Trinity is a difficult one, but at least to be able to give a basic definition, like three persons and one being. Um, and we start to understand these deeper things. Uh, what's the, who's the, you know, someone brought up this and at a conference not long ago, but you know, who's, who's the, uh, who's the main hero of second Samuel, right? Uh, who are some of these books about? What's the theme of certain books? And actually a study was done, which actually found a pre-research did a study that found that atheists as a group knew the most about religious knowledge, more than Christians. And to me, that breaks my heart. And it shows that there are people, often the people who reject Christianity are studying it and knowing it better than those who say they actually believe it. And sometimes it's people who don't believe in God and think he does not exist that actually have a better understanding of the Christian view of God than Christians often do. 
And I know Jay Warner Wallace talks about this in one of his books about how he's kind of like a California Christian. You know, it's like, you know, I'm a Californian technically. I mean, I'm wearing a Colorado hat. I'm still a Coloradoan, but I have a California residence right now. But even a Coloradoan. I was born and raised in Colorado. I'm super proud of my state. There's my shirt too. Save the storks as well. Um, I just happen to be wearing these today. But anyways, I'm a Coloradoan. But if you start to ask me like detailed questions about Colorado, like I don't even know who the governor is right now. Again, I haven't lived there for a while. Um, the state flower is the columbine. I don't know what the state tree is. Um, you know, those sort of the questions. I don't know. I'm not a very good Coloradoan as proud of my state as I am. And I'm even worse of a Californian um, because it's one, it's not my state. And even though I live here. And so oftentimes as Christians, we're the same way. When you're just born and raised into something, you often maybe take it for granted and you don't have an in-depth knowledge of it. And so sometimes our foundation is very shaky. We don't have a deep understanding of Christianity and Christian theology. And so now when objections are raised against us or against Christianity, it is going to cause doubt in our minds because we don't have that foundational knowledge to provide a firm structure. And even scripture points to this, right? Of this idea of building your house on the sand versus rock, right? When you are on a shaky foundation, it's easily destroyed and questions easily get raised up against it. And so we need to make sure that we have a strong foundation and this foundational knowledge of the theology of Christianity. On the second way that this plays in though, is that sometimes we actually have false ideas, right? So I often suggest to people that uh, if you are um, in a conversation where someone is uh, saying they do not believe in God, a question that we should often ask in that situation is, what do you mean by God? Because if their response is, well, by God, I mean a big, mean bully with a big, long, white beard who sits up in the clouds and just judges everybody, my answer is, yeah, I don't believe in him either. You see, the issue here, though, the issue here is that many people have false ideas about God, false ideas about Christianity. They don't actually understand what Christians believe, and they have these crazy stereotypical views that are not true, and then for those reasons, they question whether it could be true and then reject it, right? So we often see God as this this kind of divine dictator, maybe, or this creepy guy who sits up in the clouds and just watches and cares about what we do in our bedrooms. You hear this one a lot with, you know, topics in our culture on sexuality, uh, on sexuality, and that God is just always concerned and worried about what you do in your bedroom, like this peeping Tom. And then we go, man, that's, that's just weird, right? And then, oh yeah, of course, I feel better and I feel freedom rejecting that idea of God. Not realizing that's not the Christian view of God. Yes, there is accountability, and accountability is often very good for us, but that is not the Christian view of God. And so if that's the view of God that you're rejecting, if you're having doubts on the truth of Christianity because that's the God that you believe exists, we have to go back and give a deeper foundational knowledge of who God is, what Christians actually believe, and often those questions and those doubts are going to go away. And so that's what we have to understand when we have this foundational knowledge issue is that make sure we actually are understanding what Christians believe, what Christianity teaches, and if we don't, often doubts will spring up from there. Now, the second area that doubt comes from is a misunderstanding of what belief is. Now, my textbook, I think, does a great job, and it quotes Mark Middleberg on this, but Mark Middleberg describes different faith paths, right? That some people are on a relativistic faith path where they say that this is where the truth is whatever I want to make it. Right? Everything is just, I say, relativism. What I want the truth to be, that's what the truth is. Others would be on what he calls a traditional faith path. This is where the truth is what you have been taught. Right? This is maybe what a lot of young Christians would believe is, this is what my parents told me, therefore it's true. 
right? How could my parents possibly ever be wrong? At the same time, we quickly will admit our parents are wrong and hey, you don't know what you're talking about when it goes against what we often want to do. But this is the traditional faith path. Tradition says this, this is what I've always been taught, therefore this is what is true. The third one would be the authoritarian faith path. This is that truth is based on what I've been told. This is what I was told that I had to believe, therefore it's true, and that's where I'm going to believe. The fourth faith path that uh, Middleburg explains is the intuitive faith path. And this is the truth is what I feel in my heart, right? Whatever I feel. And this is a huge one, I think, for our culture today, is that we base truth on feelings. I feel this, therefore it is true. And we are maybe on that intuitive faith path. And I'm going to come back to this one because this one I think is really important and a doubt even that I struggle with. Uh, number five would be the mystical faith path. And he describes this one as this is truth is based on what God told you personally. So this is not the special revelation of scripture and what God has revealed to all people. But I had a personal dream, a personal vision, a personal experience with God. God spoke to me. He told me this. Therefore, that's true. Rather than taking that experience maybe, or that dream or that thought, comparing it back with scripture and seeing, is this actually biblical? Does this line up with God, what God has already revealed in his word? The last one, the sixth one would be the evidential faith path. This is that truth is based on what logic and evidence point to. And the Christian view, as according to Middleburg, and I would agree, is that the last one, the, the evidential faith path, is the one that represents the biblical idea of a believing faith. Now, this is often surprising because Christians often have this blind faith or this faith based on, you know, I'm going to take a leap of faith, close my eyes and hope it's true. And we base this on verses like in uh, John 20, uh, I think it's 19 or 29, or I think John 20, 29, it says, uh, you know, we're, we're doubting Thomas, right? That Thomas has doubts and says, ah, I can only believe if I see. And then Jesus says, greater, you know, blessed are those who believe without seeing. And so we often say, oh, look, there's a greater faith if you don't see any evidence. But that's not what Jesus was saying there. Um, because in the very next verses, it says that Jesus did many miracles, many that are not written in the books, so that you would believe that Jesus is the son, Christ, the Son of God. Right, Jesus gave many convincing proofs and evidences, and we see this all throughout Scripture. We see this in the beginning of the book of Luke, where Luke is writing his gospel to Theophilus so that he may know for certainty that the things that he has been told are true. When I mean, I always quote these, and I think it's so important when the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus, right? John the Baptist is in prison. The disciples come to Jesus, go, are you really the one that we're waiting for, right? And those doubts start to creep up because there are hard issues in life, right? John's in prison. Jesus doesn't say, yes, just believe. Jesus says, look around you, really. You know, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, right? Jesus showing that he has authority over sickness, disease, and death and those things, that he is God in that way, right? When he says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, they say, well, who are you to forgive sins? Only God can do that. Jesus says, stand up and walk. He did not say, just believe, right? Jesus gave uh, an evidential path to, to where people are looking around them, seeing the miracles, and these miracles are written so that we may know and that we may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's important for us to recognize that biblical faith is a firm trust or a confidence in someone or something, not this blind leap that often people uh, take. By the way, I think that that verse was John 20, 29. Um, now, where this comes into play for me, here's, for example, my big doubt. The area that I struggle is in prayer. And I constantly, maybe not constantly, that's not the right word, but I, I frequently doubt whether God is actually listens to prayer. 
And I think the reason why is a couple of things. One, it's very one-sided. Uh, I pray and I say amen, and that's the end. I've never heard the audible voice of God. Now, here's where these faith paths come in are, and are so important. If I was on the intuitive faith path where truth is whatever I feel in my heart, well, guess what I feel in my heart? I feel like God doesn't exist. I feel, or, or even no more basic, I feel like he did not listen to my prayer. And if I base my truth on that, I feel like God's not listening. Therefore, it's true that God is not listening. Now I have this big problem. Well, because scripture is clear that God does listen to our prayers. He hears us when we pray. He says, call out to me. I hear you. And at the same time, so either one, he's lying in scripture when he says he hears us and he's not, or God doesn't exist. Maybe I feel like God doesn't hear my prayer because he doesn't hear it because he's not even there. Notice how very quickly, if I start to base truth on what I feel in my heart, and I feel like God's not listening, I quickly say, well, therefore, he is not listening. But guys, remember that our feelings deceive us all the time. We have feelings all the time that we think are good or we think are bad, and it turns out that we were actually wrong. Right? We should not be basing what is true based on what we feel in our hearts. Truth is based on what aligns with reality. Truth is what logic and evidence point to. We have good reason to believe that God exists. We have good reason to believe that the Bible is the true inspired word of God. And so if the scripture says that God listens to our prayer, I believe that there's good reason to believe that. We've gone over those arguments in the past. That's what the evidence and the logic point to, right? You can make an argument. If the Bible is the word of God, and if the Bible says that God listens to our prayer, and if the Bible is true, if the Bible is the true word of God, and if the Bible says God listens to our prayer, therefore God does listen to your prayer. Right? If those first two premises are true, then the conclusion is also true. And even though I feel in my heart that God's not listening, that feeling is a false feeling. And then I can, I can catch that thought and say, hey, that, that's a false idea. This is a false idea creeping into my mind that God's not listening. God, I know that you're listening. Thank you for listening to that prayer. So here's so important of, of how we recognize why these doubts might come up. We start to have doubts about the existence of God, maybe because our parents told us that God doesn't exist, right? And an authority has been told that you should not believe in God. And so, well, what, man, if this is, authority says, if my professor in college says I shouldn't believe in God, maybe I shouldn't. Well, how do I actually know? And right, these things start to creep into our mind. It must be true if I've been told by a professor not to believe. Or maybe a professor told me I have to believe in evolution because evolution's a fact, and so this is what I've been told I have to believe. Evolution's a fact. And so how, how do I reconcile this? What do the truth and what does the truth and evidence point to? And so this is where it's so important is not simply just to believe authorities or simply to believe our parents or what we've been told but in the traditional path or even what we feel in our heart or what we even want to be true in relativism, but going based on the evidence. So I think that's a huge one. And something to think about for you guys is what this misunderstanding about what belief comes from. Now, the third one is that doubt often comes from conflicting commitments, right? This is where uh, we have ideas or we have lifestyles that we simply just do not want to abandon, right? And here's where the question comes in, I think is a good one, is what are you afraid would happen to you if you became a Christian? And if someone goes, I'm not afraid of anything, okay, well, then maybe this is not the doubts. This is not the reason why they have doubts. Uh, they're not afraid of anything. But oftentimes people are afraid about not willing to pay the cost in lifestyle, reputation, or family harmony, right? And I've had all three of these. As I shared the lifestyle, if I admit that God exists, I'll have to stop doing the things that I want to do. I had a student in the past, I've had students who have told me things like, uh, one said, 
if I become a Christian, then my life would change and people would look at me differently, right? There's a big lifestyle reputation not willing to pay the price of that. And with the majority of my students coming from mainland China, I've had students tell me that they reached out to a parent and said that they were thinking about Christianity and their parent flat out said, no, I don't want you to be a Christian. I didn't send you to America to become a Christian. And that breaks my heart. You know, you need to focus on school, not religion. And I understand why these things cause turmoil inside of people because Look, when I became a Christian, I didn't give up any family harmony or really a reputation or lifestyle. Like that's what my family was doing. And that's the lifestyle that I was already in being born and raised in a Christian family. I totally get why some people would have a difficulty coming to believe in Jesus Christ because of recognition of uh, dealing with family harmony, reputation, and a lifestyle. In the video I showed my students today, Brett uh, talked about a story that happened on one of the Maven Immersive Experiences to Utah, which I lead, and I'm hopefully, God willing, the coronavirus doesn't cancel it, uh, they don't cancel because of that, but hopefully this summer I'll be going on one Utah trip and two Berkeley trips, but um, uh, one trip where they, they ran into a, a guy at a, a food court, uh, in Utah, in Salt Lake City, Utah, began talking with him, and he was struggling with Mormonism, and they talked to him, and they gave him resources and everything, and they said, hey, next year when we come back, uh, let's meet up again, and they kept in contact, and they met up th with this guy the next year, and and they sat down to talk with him, and he flat out said, look, I am now convinced Mormonism is false, Joseph Smith is a fraud, um, I I think it's all made up, and there's no grounding for any of it, but I'm not, I can't walk away. And, and they were shocked and they asked, well, why, why not? Why can't you walk away? And, and the answer was this. The answer was, one, if I leave, my wife will leave me. My, she'll take the kids. All my friends are Mormon. My business associates are Mormon. My employees are Mormon. Like It will wreck business. It will wreck my family. I'll lose my kids. That's not something I am willing to give up. And so even though uh, he recognized that Mormonism was false, or that he believed that Mormonism was false, that um, he was unwilling to give up that lifestyle, even the reputation, and his family harmony, all three with one person. And that is a huge call. And that's where we have to consider for ourselves the treasure and the value of Jesus Christ. I recognize when people struggle to see that and see the cost as greater than the value of Jesus, but that's something that we can help with ourselves and others, recognizing the value of who Jesus is and that he is the greatest thing, right? And there's even parables that Jesus told about this, but, you know, selling treasures and selling everything he had to buy the pearl, right? And the value of Jesus. Now, um, there are atheists that flat out admit this. And I've talked about this in other videos where, where you know, Harvard biologists, you know, uh, Richard Lawton, you know, admitted to not being unwilling to let a divine foot in the door. Uh, Thomas Nagel says this, and this is here in our book, Thomas Nagel, a professor of philosophy at New York University. Uh, he said it this way. He says, it isn't that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my beliefs. It is that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Now, most atheists are not going to be this upfront in their admission of um, their kind of the bias and, and their conflicting commitment. But he says, flat, clear out. Yeah, I believe that God doesn't exist. And I hope I'm right. But it's not that I just, you know, it's not I hope that there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Here's a way that I want the universe to be. And I just don't want the universe to be in a way that has a creator God over it. And so we have to recognize that there are often commitments that people have, ideas that people have, behaviors that people have that they are unwilling to give up. 
and that is going to cause doubt to creep in. And that happens even with Christians, that as we begin to learn information or as God is calling us into new areas, sometimes we don't want to change uh, what we're doing in order to align our lives in the way that God has called us to live. And so sometimes we either don't count the cost or sometimes we count the cost and, re and make the decision, I don't want to pay that cost. And so sometimes our doubts are coming from conflicting commitments, things that we're holding on to that we are often unwilling to give up. So it'd be good to sit there and kind of reflect for yourself. Are there things that you are, you are unwilling to give up that is maybe raising this doubt inside of you? The fourth one that we looked at as a class is that doubts come from practical atheism. As I mentioned before, this would be the idea that you believe in God, but you, um, but you live as if God does not exist. Right, and that this is where really God is irrelevant in much of what you do, and because you're He's irrelevant in many of the areas of your life, eventually He just kind of drops out of mind, and He's just kind of simply forgotten. And and what this often happens, and, and what happens is that we start to have a very confined view of reality, and we don't re actually have a view of reality that includes a picture of God and what He is capable of doing. And so our book gives this very helpful illustration of that if you think about all the things that happen in the world, right? I'll, I'll, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see this. If you're listening, you have to imagine I'm holding my hands out, right? And uh, in a big like circle. And all the things that happen, all the things that happen. Now, what we believe is possible is a smaller circle, right? There's a circle inside of that of what we believe is possible. Because there are things that I maybe don't believe are possible that are, or things that I'm unaware of that are possible and do happen. So of the things that happen, a smaller circle is the things that I actually believe are possible. Now, within the things I think are possible, a smaller circle are the things that I have actually experienced for myself, right? I have not personally experienced everything that's possible to experience in this life. Right? We all recognize that. My experiences are much smaller. Now, of the things I experience, there's a smaller circle of the things that I have actually processed and analyzed. Right? There are a lot of things that happen in our life that we go through and it goes right in one ear and out the other, That you know, experiences that just pass right through and we don't stop and really reflect on them. So of the things that have happened to us and that we've actually stopped and thought about and processed and analyzed, that's a smaller circle. And now it's often based on that small circle, hopefully you can still grab that picture, it's often based on that small circle that we construct our view of reality, right? That we have a very limited view of reality, right? And this is where it comes in of like, you, you hear someone say something and immediately you might go, nah, I don't think that's possible, right? Now stop yourself at that moment and go, why don't you think that's possible? Why not? And now think about this now when it comes to something like a miracle. You say something like, this miracle happened. Now the question is, is um, you might get someone who says, well, miracles aren't possible. Why not? Now, I don't know about you guys, but the answer that I get more often than not is, well, I've never seen one. I've never experienced one. Hmm. It's an interesting response. Um, are we saying that we have seen or experienced everything that it's possible to see and experience in this life? Of course not, right? We have already understood that we experience, our experiences are much, much, much smaller than all that's possible to happen in this life. But notice with that objection of I haven't seen it or I haven't experienced it makes it seem as if I've seen and experienced everything that's possible to be seen or experienced. And if I haven't seen or experienced it, it's not possible. Right? That very limited view of reality. So whatever you're saying happened, it obviously didn't happen because miracles are not possible and they're not possible. And I know they're not possible because I've never seen or experienced one. So whatever you think happened actually 
didn't. Recognize that, again, we're confining uh, our own personal experiences, or we're confining our view of reality to our personal experiences, but we know that that's not possible. Now, I even asked students, and I don't know if there's any way to actually put a number on this, um, but uh, you can think about how many people you have heard stories about. How many people have you heard stories about? How many people do you know facts about? How many people have you just mentioned their name, you know, heard of their name, right? Maybe 10,000, 100,000, right? That's what some of the students would say. say. Um, now, how many people live, live on this planet? Is it possible that people that you've never heard about, people that are living in some crazy part of the world, have had experiences that you don't even think are possible? Of course. Now, it's also interesting that people say that, you know, things like miracles are impossible and I've never experienced one and, and I've never heard of one. That often happens because maybe we're not actually looking, right? Craig Keener has written a two-volume set on miracles. Uh, Lee Strobel has a book, The Case for Miracles. There are lots of books and, and, and that you can read detailed descriptions of what are confirmed and seem to be evidentially based miracle stories, but oftentimes we haven't looked at those books, we haven't read those resources, we haven't searched it, and we just assume that because I haven't heard of any crazy stories, therefore the crazy stories don't actually happen. But then oftentimes, when we are told or when we hear about a crazy story, we go, oh, well, that's not possible, and we just dismiss it. And this, and then we go, okay, yeah, it's not possible. And there's a really funny video on YouTube <clears throat> with uh, Donald and Connell, the... Uh, um, uh, Oh, shoot. I wasn't planning on saying this. So I'm forgetting. But Donald and Connell, if you search that on YouTube, uh, meet Richard Dawkins, right? There's another funny one about on the Trinity. Um, but anyways, it's Lutheran satire. But um, Donald and Connell meet Richard Dawkins, and he says, you know, people don't rise from the dead. And they're like, well, except for that one guy who rose from the dead. And they're like, well, and he goes, well, of course that didn't happen. And they kind of go through the conversation and get to the point where it's like, okay, so let me get this straight. So, you know, you can prove that there's no resurrections because you throw out all the evidence for all the resurrections. So if you don't count all the people who have risen from the dead, therefore no one has risen from the dead, right? Uh, and, and that's often what happens is that we say, these things aren't possible. I've never experienced one. I've never heard of one. And all the ones that we've heard of, we dismiss as not possible because we say we've never experienced one or never heard of one. And so, in short, what really is happening here with this practical atheism is this is not much as much rebellion against God, but it really is just a very small view of what is really going on in the world. And we just are not even sometimes willing to accept things that are outside of our picture. And so hopefully with this one, we just help people recognize and maybe go through that process of, hey, don't, don't you, wouldn't you recognize and admit that, that things happen in this world that you've not experienced or seen for yourself? And is it possible that miracles are happening within that or that there is a bigger view of reality, right? That God has influenced reality in a way that this world of what is possible grows, right? We often limit what is possible based on scientism or naturalism, that there's a natural explanation for everything and everything can be proven using the scientific method, right? And that's like going through a beach with a metal detector and saying, ha, oh, there's no plastic. I've proven there's no plastic in the world. It's like, well, you're using the wrong device, and if we have a philosophical idea of naturalism, that there's a natural explanation for everything, then we rule out everything supernatural and say, okay, there's no supernatural, only a natural world. And it's like, well, you're using the wrong tool. Science studies a natural world. You can't use science and disprove supernatural and therefore say and limit the world to only natural things. And so hopefully with this, we recognize and we admit, look, my tool, my metal detector detects metal. I can only prove there's no metal on the beach using a metal detector. I can't prove that there's no plastic on the beach, right? There's more to this world than we often recognize or that we see. 
And so hopefully that kind of helps us expand our view of what possibly could exist. And then we start looking for the evidence and the reasons to believe and see if those things actually do exist. So don't let doubt creep up because you just simply don't include it in your view and your picture of reality. Um, the fifth one, we got two more left in our time together. And then if, again, if there's any questions, send those in. I see a few of you are watching. Um, again, I know there's a lot of stuff happening right now, but uh, this, the fifth one is that a doubt comes from sin's effects. All right. Um, and here's an interesting quote, and this is in our book, um, from Aldous Huxley or Aldous Huxley in his book, The Brave New World. He wrote this, I want to believe the Darwinian idea. I chose to believe it not because I think there was enormous evidence for it, nor because I believed it had the full authority to give an interpretation to my origins, but I chose to believe it because it delivered me from trying to find meaning and freed me to my own erotic passions. Now that again is a very open and honest admission that oftentimes we make decisions not because the evidence leads it there, but because of us wanting to live in a certain way. And here this section is talking about doubt comes from the effects of sin, right? And this even goes into this idea of, and a study that was done that studied teenage boys who watch a lot of pornography and showed that those who watch a lot of porn also report lower levels of religious practice lower self-esteem, lower identity development regarding dating, and higher levels of depression. We have a negative view of love in our culture. We have a negative view of how sexuality should work. And, and we have broken views of sexuality. And if we are living in that brokenness, then being part of a religious community that is trying to preach wholeness is often going to make us feel guilty. Right? Look at Adam and Eve in the very first sin. Right, They ate the fruit. Sin entered the world. And what did they do? They felt ashamed. They went and hid themselves. Oftentimes, when we are engaged in sin, we're not being open and honest and stepping out and admitting our sin and telling others what we have done so that we can move into the light. Oftentimes, the effects of sin cause us to step into isolation and hide in fear that people might find out what we have done and that sense of guilt that we often have. You know, the effects of sin. And so we, it makes sense then of people living in sin, people engaged in sinful activities are going to maybe step away from the church, report lower levels of religious practice, because again, that, that's what often is what makes them feel guilty. And so rather than doing what's right to stop feeling guilty, we want to stop being around the people who cause us often to feel guilty. And so we see the effects of sin coming to, into our lives, right? Um, and, and the sinful nature that we have and the sexual sin that has invaded our culture has radically transformed the idea of love. And I think it's a good question to ask people because to ask people in our culture, what is love? Because we often give love as a response. We should love one another. We should care for one another. We uh, Love is love. Hashtag love wins, right? These uh, ideas are constantly, don't you love them? Why would you tell them what they're doing is wrong? And we, at that time, we need to stop and ask the question, well, what do you mean by love? How do you actually define love, right? Uh, true love gives, right, is, is a giving love, right? First John uh, 3.16 is by this you may know love, that he laid down his life for his friend. Right? How, what is First John 3.16, how is that defining love? That you're willing to lay down your life for someone. Because you're giving to them, you're trying to build them up. True love is focusing on long-term effects and treating people as persons. 
The, the problem with our sexual sin and the culture that we live in is that our view of love has changed to, it's taking, right? It's a selfish love. I love you because you satisfy a desire that I have. Um, the, the love in our culture today is a, a love that actually focuses on our short-term pleasure, um, on what we want and what we desire and what we need, and actually is treating people as objects. That's what happens when, when people watch a lot of pornography is it actually activates a tool part of your brain, tool use part of your brain, where you start seeing people as objects to be used in order for to fulfill sexual desires that you have rather than people to be loved that should be treated with dignity and respect, right? We see that in our culture all the time that we start, I mean, what, ask someone, what, what, is it, what does love mean? We often want to define it as a strong sexual attraction to them or a strong desire for them or someone, um, or I think that they're beautiful or this tingly feeling I feel inside when I talk to someone. That's not love, right? Greater love had no man that he's willing to lay down his life for a friend. First John 3, 16, that by this you know love, willing to lay down your life. True love gives. True love is that self-sacrifice. True love focuses on the long term, not our short-term pleasure. And so we often have a very skewed view of what love is. But we recognize that we have a distorted view of love. This distorted view of love has serious consequences on our life. And then it causes us to start to doubt. And, and what does it even mean that Jesus loved us? For God so loved the world that he gave his son for us. Right there again is this idea of loving and giving up. Not loving because you make me better. Loving because you help me. Loving because of what you do for me. That's often how our culture defines love. Interesting little experiment that you could do is, you know, when someone is about to get married, ask them, you know, why do you want to marry them? Why do you love them? Or if someone says, oh, I love this girl, why do you love her? And and just maybe listen to the reasons. I don't know. And see, I'd be curious. And you can comment below if you have, if you try this out uh, and see, do they give reasons about um, them and how they're, and the, the, the care and compassion they have for them and the reasons which they've given to them and the, the focus on the long term and the focus on them? Or is it, oh man, they make me happy and they make me this and they do this for me and how much of it is a self-centered view of love? I don't know, something you guys uh, can check out there. Um, our last view of where doubts come from, and this is actually what I talked about in my video that I just did of trying to encourage you to pursue meaningful uh, how did I put it? Um, meaningful pursuits, right? Pursue meaningful pursuits in the video I just put up uh, in this time of social distancing is that doubts often come from distractions, right? So we, as our book, talk, my book talks about 5,000 advertisements a day that we see. We're constantly flooding with ads. We now have the internet is tracking what you do to where you uh, look at something on Amazon and you look at a product and then you jump over to Facebook and Facebook is now advertising that product that you were just looking at, right? So we have people tracking us, advertising to us in a way that is a very self-centered view. And what often then happens is that we get the impression that life is about buying things. And it's this very self-centered idea. Life is about buying things and life is about me and everyone is advertising to me and telling me what I should get and what I want. And we change our identities from being producers, what God has created us. God made us to be creators and it changes our identity to be mainly consumers. And I become a consumer. It's all about consuming. It's all about bringing in. And it's all about um, uh, life is about me and what people are going to offer me and what I can get. And because of this, and because of all the distractions, and because of all the things that are flooding us, we have a hard time concentrating. And, and as it points out here, Jeff Myers wrote this in our book. He says, if we pay too much attention to our consumer appetites, we can't pay attention to more meaningful pursuits.
right? So we're often distracted. And these distractions and the massive amounts of information that's coming into us, whether it's listening to music all the time or watching TV and playing video games and YouTube and all the advertisements, it's distracting us and it often makes us selfish. It makes it easier at least to be selfish. It's all about me. And it makes us lazy. You see, I, I love this and that how the physiology of the brain actually works and that when you organize your thoughts, it actually brings pleasure to you. When, when you start thinking stuff and you're planning and you're strategizing, it actually activates your brain's limbic system and, and sends off the experience of pleasure that you're actually built to actually think to work and to enjoy that work. And you probably know that, that when you've done something and you've worked really hard at something, uh, you feel good when you're done, right? There's that sense of accomplishment and that pleasure of feeling good. Your brain is also designed that when you meditate and pray, it brings pleasure as well. The same thing happens here, and I talked about this in that other video. But um, it, it shows that, and studies have, have shown that when you are intently focused on something, it actually... Um, changes the aspect of your brain, which is sensitive to space and time, and that actually goes dim, right? So when you're intently focused on an activity or you're in deep prayer, thought, meditation, you sometimes become unaware of your surroundings, or maybe your friends are talking or things are going on and you're unaware of what's happening around you. And you kind of have to come back too. Or other times that you're doing something and the time just flies by, and man, where did the time go? Because you're so concentrated on something that you can actually, your brain was designed to concentrate and to enjoy the concentration to where actually you become almost in this new world as you just enjoy the experience of what you're concentrating or meditating on or praying about. And finally, the brain is actually designed to where you, when you communicate your thoughts, it brings pleasure as well. That when you um, are thinking about things and then you are Finding ways to use language to communicate that, it actually activates pleasure aspects of your brain as well. And so you're designed to communicate and to enjoy it. And so we recognize that this is a good thing. This is how God has designed us to actually think deeply about life and think deeply about the world. The problem, though, is that in our media-saturated culture with YouTube, video games, music, TV, movies, advertisements, and everything grabbing for your attention and breaking news all the time, it makes us it makes it very difficult to actually give sustained focused attention to something to actually truly bring that pleasure that we are designed to experience in thinking deeply about life um he, there's also a study done by Leonard Sachs, who's a psychologist, and said that he found that video games shut off the blood flow to the brain's executive center while stimulating the brain's pleasure center. This gave players the feeling of reward at having achieved great objectives without actually accomplishing anything in the real world. Right, so what we recognize is that video games and technology and, and cell phones and movies and advertisements and everything that is so distracting us, we have a difficult time thinking deeply, and this now then diminishes our thoughtfulness, our communication, our capacity for spiritual reflection. What is it, and I, and I ask students this because they, I, they, students will push hard against me when I bring up this idea of constantly walking around with AirPods in their ears, constantly filling our lives with entertainment, with, with music, with something. And I don't think that it's bad to listen to music. But when that's constantly, when we constantly have something activating us, something to, to stimulate us, what does it mean then when scripture says, be still and know that I am God? What do we, how do we understand this idea that Jesus got away in solitude and silence when we are filled with distractions? 
is it possibly that is it possible that we have actually wired our brain to to crave and desire constant stimulation that you, when you don't have your phone you don't have something and you're sitting in silence you might go crazy because it's almost like a drug you need that constant stimulation that's true then how do we practice these disciplines of silence and solitude how do we be like Jesus how do we be still and know that he is that who God is how do we take that time and think deeply and meditate and, and reflect spiritually on life and who Jesus is and what he has done for us and the price that he paid and all of these things that are so deeply important to us? And this is where my encouragement to you was, is that in this time of social distancing and quarantine in the house, it can be easy to fill that time with lots of video games and lots of YouTube and lots of movies and TV and those sort of things and kind of distract us and kind of keep us entertained for the time being. But I would encourage you guys to find meaningful pursuits, to do things that cause you to organize your thoughts, meditate and pray and think deeply about things that are truly important and things that matter, and then communicate those things. So what I'm doing, um, I'm actually taking an online class through the Reasons Institute on evangelism in a scientific context, so I'm reading a few different books. I'm soon going to start the book Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis. Uh, and so I'm trying to read as much as I possibly can. Um, about two years ago, year, actually no, about a year and a half ago, I signed up for Rosetta Stone Vietnamese. As those who don't know, my wife Emily, she is Vietnamese. And so I signed up about a year and a half ago for Rosetta Stone Vietnamese. So that's one thing that I need to be working on more. I've had it for a year and a half and I'm still not even close to being done. And so that's one thing I'm working on. I would encourage you, find a new hobby. Uh, play guitar, do something of that sort. Uh, just do things that truly matter. Watch good videos. Watch this video. Hopefully you're still watching. Um, find other videos that are good to watch. There's lots of recommendations I have on my YouTube channel uh, where you can see other people's channels that are putting out really good content that cause us to think deeper about life. I think that's the important thing when it comes to the difference between amusement and entertainment. I love the way that this is put. I don't remember who said it this way, but uh, a good book causes you to think deeper about life. A bad book distracts you from life. I think the same can be said about movies and music. Good music, good movies, good books, they cause you to really think deeper about life, to think deeper about what's going on. Um, amusement simply just distracts us from life. And don't have this be a time of distraction. Have this be a time where you're intently thinking deeply about the things that God has called us to do, how we love him, how we love our neighbor as ourselves. The issue here as we kind of wrap up is that distracted people have a hard time focusing on what is really true and even worth believing. And I think this is even something that played into the coronavirus is that some people don't actually think it's a big deal, even though everything is shut down. I know for me, I was like, oh man, this is probably like a lot of the other sicknesses, not a big deal until the NBA closed uh, last week. And it's like, oh my goodness, what is going on? Why, why would that happen? You know, I think part of this is that the media, everything is breaking news, urgent. Oh my goodness, look at this, look at that. And it's like when everything is seen as being so important, we have a hard time filtering out what is truly important, what is actually worth believing. And so that's something that we have to process is how are we communicating and how are we just being so distracted that we can't even figure out what is truly important, what is truly serious, what is actually a big issue that we need to take our time and think about. We sometimes push big issues to the side. We sometimes push uh, dangerous things off to the side. And we go, ah, oh, that's not a big deal uh, because we just don't even recognize what is worth believing. And then ultimately, um, sometimes it becomes so bad that we start questioning whether anything is worth believing, right? How could, 
how do I know anything? Why do I need, even need to take the time to think deeply about anything? Because there's just so much that's going on. Let me maybe just focus on what I like, what I don't like. And so hopefully this is an encouragement to you as you watch this, as there are a lot of things happening in our life, as we have lots of questions about what's going on in the world right now, is that recognition of where doubt is coming from. Sometimes we just have misunderstandings about Christianity, and so our questions are stemming from misunderstandings. If that's true, and these are intellectual questions you have, seek after answers. There's a lot of really good answers on my channel and many other channels. And if you don't know where to look for a certain answer, let me know and I'll find something for you. Sometimes we're just on the wrong faith path and we, we, we think the truth is coming from our feelings. And I feel like God's not there, therefore he's not. And again, I want to encourage you, look after evidence. Seek what is logical, what is reasonable to believe. And there's good reasons to believe that Christianity is true. Recognize the different ideas that you have that may conflict with the truth of Christianity, different lifestyles, different decisions, and focus on what is important there. And maybe pray about that. Help God. Uh, ask God to help you give some of those ideas up if you truly want to follow him and love him in that. See the world in a way that includes God, recognizing what God is actually able to do, that God can do anything that's consistent with his nature and logically possible, and uh, he can do incredible things. And when we see the world in that way, our eyes are open to the possibilities. Sometimes we're so distracted in the thing that satisfies us, right? As C.S. Lewis said in one of his books, you know, the child playing in the mud cannot even understand a vacation at the sea. Sometimes we cannot understand the immensity of God's love and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ because we're too satisfied with simple little things. Open our minds to the reality and a world that is created and filled with a God who can do all things. Recognize the decisions, the sin in your life, and the distractions that are often distracting us. And hopefully when we see these, we can start to see where these intellectual questions are coming from. We can see where the emotional issues and hurt often is coming from. And we can see where the moral sin and rebellion is coming from as we see these different areas that we're unwilling to give up. And then with that, and hopefully we come alongside people, practice legitimately or clearly, practically the body of Christ concept as we come around each other in this. So hopefully this is an encouragement to you in this time. And then on March 31st, I'll come back with an interview with AJ Roberts from Reasons to Believe talking about viruses and the coronavirus. So with that, I'm going to sign off. Have an awesome rest of your day, guys. Stay safe, be healthy, see God, love Him, and uh, enjoy your time. Won't hesitate to follow Your love will guide my way